You are now listening to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Wait, the answer was add 10 gallons? Add 10 gallons. My first thought was we got to put active children. Yeah, great. Yeah. <laughs> Trucks on, on, the on the way. On the way. Yeah, okay. I've got two observations, uh, neither of which are really educated or well thought out. <laughs> which are like most of my observations are. There aren't a lot of problems on a job site that can't be solved with a sack full of biscuits. Today's episode of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast is brought to you by Actigel 208. Actigel 208 is a high-performance additive for the concrete industry that is greatly beneficial to the producer. It enables them to increase the percentage of manufactured sand by up to 100% and completely replace all the natural sand in the mix. In areas where natural sand is scarce, inconsistent, and expensive, this provides a huge benefit to any ready-mix company out there. Benefits of manufactured sand and concrete include consistent air content, improved compaction, and increased density. Now in the past, the downside of using manufactured sands was that they were hard to pump, hard to place, and hard to finish. Well, Actigel 208 solves all those issues. By improving suspension, stability, and the quality of the cement paste in the mix, Actigel overcomes the old issues with manufactured sand and leaves them behind. Let Actigel 208 improve the quality of your mix while saving money on every yard you produce. For more information, visit us at actigel.com. That's A-C-T-I-G-E-L.com. Welcome in, ladies and gentlemen, to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. We're back again. I'm Josh. Joined, as always, by Paul and Joey Bell. How you guys doing? Doing good, brother. This is the only reason I come into the office anymore. So, word. Glad to see you. Word. Joey, what's up there at the home office? <laughs> yeah, everything's good. I'm just glad to be back recording. It seems like it's been forever since I've actually been a part of this thing. <laughs> I've always been somewhere. <laughs> yeah. No, for sure. It's, I mean, our, our content is being spaced out for sure, but it, it's for good reason. I mean, we're all over the place and we're, we're doing good things and we're meeting some really interesting people and, uh, you know, hearing a lot of good stories out there. And hopefully here in the near future, we got some more unique guests coming on, much like the one we have today. Luai Curdy, he is the founder and CEO of Print4D. And uh, boys, we've done this a few times before. But in this particular instance, I'm very proud of ourselves because for the last three or four episodes, we have mentioned 3D concrete printing in some aspect. And now we finally got an expert on here to tell us about it. Yeah, I don't think people really understand. Like, we've been trying to record this podcast for, like, weeks. Like, <laughs> At we've least had, two, yeah. We've, we've had this interview in the hopper, and we couldn't get together to do the current events segment. We tried doing it from, like, different locations. We're like, hey, are you available? Like, we'll just do it from your house. Like, who cares? Like, we need to get this out. No, nobody's available. Uh, Josh is working nights. Joey's working days. I was off, uh, you know. And then it's like, okay, well, now I'm available. It's okay, well, I'm working nights. Joey's working, you know, nights. It was crazy. Nobody was available. It was the most insane schedule. Here it we is, are, finally. It is now officially night pour season, so <laughs> I got that going for me. <laughs> you, you worked three nights last week. Awful. Well, you don't sleep anyway, Josh. I mean, you, you can either spend your night at the garage working on something, or you can spend it at the concrete plant. Just take your pick. Yeah, yeah, sometimes it's both. <laughs> yeah the last job was like a half hour from his garage so Ooh. he just did both yeah it it's that time of year where 
I'm doing I'm doing stuff for other people, getting tires and carts and stuff ready. I'm doing my own stuff. Um, you know, trying to look for a, a bigger shop space because I'm doing more powder coating stuff. And what about that shop next to you? That wasn't enough. Is they just they won't open it up for me. They're they're oh like, they won't take the wall down. Yeah, they're real mm-hmm. slow about you know they're real slow about giving me the space I need. So now I'm trying to look elsewhere and you know. As in life, whether you're talking about a car or a house or a shop or a trailer, you never have enough space. You never, you like, whatever space you have, you'll fill it up and then some. So that's where I'm at, where I need more space to become more efficient in my time as it pertains to powder coating and racing and all that stuff. So when I get to the shop, I'm not spending most of my time organizing, cleaning, setting up, that kind of stuff. Hmm, but, that's interesting. Yeah, once I, get, once I get all that stuff set up, you know, maybe I'll be able to pump some more work out but the powder coating hobby is taking over is my life yes <laughs> wow well at least that one makes you money yes did you go racing this weekend uh n- <laughs> <laughs> i went i worked at a track on saturday as a race director okay. just like a local deal okay. and then i went there on sunday to scuff tires um that is literally like whether they're new tires or you've used them before um, tires age over time. They become harder on the surface, and depending on the construction of the tire, you can affect the sidewall stiffness by how many laps you put on it, basically putting a heat cycle through it and activating the, the chemicals within the rubber. You get it up to the heat, the, the heat range, and it changes the composition of the rubber. So with go-kart tires, you cycle your tires with age, thickness, date, how many laps are on them, so every once in a while, you need to go out to a racetrack and put five to ten practice laps on about a dozen set of tires. And that's what. So you weren't racing? Nope. I went to a racetrack and just turned about two hundred laps all by myself, just just so I have a better tire inventory when I look, do go to race. Look, I want people listening to this to know how much value we're bringing to your life right now. You came <laughs> for a concrete podcast. Yeah. But you were leaving smarter about go-karts. I don't know how much of this I'm going to keep in. But we'll <laughs> what? No, that was great. Yeah. That's, that's my life, guys, just in case you thought your life was boring as hell. <laughs> <laughs> What'd you do this weekend? Well, I drove in circles by myself. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I ain't even, uh, yeah. I'm not even going to get into my hobby, which is, you know, wandering around miles deep in the woods, shooting a bird <laughs> that you can buy at Kroger. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but I told you last week um, the picture you posted online of you and your your baby, and y'all are sitting there next to that dead bird. That's the happiest I've ever seen her in her two years on this earth. Was sitting next to her dad next to the dead bird. Yep. <laughs> Turns out it's genetic. Yep. She can't what, what help is, it. What does she say to the dead turkey? What was her phrase? Oh, so she tries to say turkey. Uh, but she can't say turkey, of course. She says, tut, tut. And so I forget what it was. Like one day we were like leaving the house or it was bath time. We were leaving uh, the living room and I have this like this statuette, I guess you would call it, uh, of like two bronze turkeys, you know, from National Wild Turkey Federation. And uh, whatever we were doing, we were leaving. She just, she just turned to that bronze statuette. And she just said, bye, tut, tut. And so ever since then, you know, she'll say, bye, tut, tut you know, randomly. So I was like, that's probably going to be what I say before I squeeze the trigger from now on. Bye, tut, tut. 
<laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> well, while y'all were doing that, I spent the weekend in Birmingham, Alabama, and we uh, went back for my dad's memorial. So that was great. Our whole family, for people that didn't know, my dad passed away recently, and he was the 11th of 12 kids. Whew. Wow. And he was 56 years old when he passed. And so his like oldest brother is like 72. And wow. everybody just doesn't get together anymore. I mean, I had cousins at this memorial that I hadn't seen in 20 years, legitimately, mm-hmm. maybe 25, a long, long time. Because everybody moves off and comes back and stuff. Yeah. But they were all there. I mean, it was crazy. And the Finley family is the one of the most dysfunctional crews <laughs> I've ever met. And everybody was on their best behavior, <laughs> had good food. It was unbelievable. It was actually, like, normally you think, oh, man, your dad died. You had to, like, go have a memorial. Like, it's horrible. It's had, it was, like, one of the greatest weekends I've had in a long time. That's good, Just man. Mm-hmm. Seeing all the family and everybody actually, like, being cool. Got to show my daughter to everybody because, like, none of them had hardly met her. Right. You know, because mm-hmm. we live up here, not in Alabama. But, uh, but that was cool, man. Birmingham yeah. was cool. Did your fiancé go down there with you? Yeah, she did too. So everybody got to meet her. And so a lot of those people had gotten uh, like wedding invitations and stuff. And I didn't expect any of them to say they were going to come because it's a long way away for them. It's, I mean, it's a heck of a drive. Plane tickets are insane right now. They are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But man, we've got like half the family. I couldn't believe it. How many people are like, yeah, we're coming. We're packing the car. Make a week out of it. Nice. All right. So I've got I've to gotta ask. Well, one, was it her first time in Alabama? And two, if so, what were her thoughts of her first trip to Alabama? Second time. First time really staying. So I made sure to take take her and let her stay in, like, the nicer part of town. <laughs> 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 the side of town that doesn't smell funny. Uh, the only thing that makes her laugh about Birmingham is she grew up in Philadelphia, which is a big city with tons of history mm-hmm. and so when she goes to Birmingham she's like this is it <laughs> this is the city this is the whole thing the whole thing right here those a, two buildings you know it's a big like, town really yeah it's a town it's like mm-hmm. yeah yeah here's what we got she's like whoa you know cool tell me about the history I'm like well we got this thing <laughs> called the Vulcan <laughs> and uh, you know he shows his bare behind to half the city of Birmingham up on this hill and she was like uh, okay, <laughs> I like, we have we have Nick Saban, <laughs> checkmate. <laughs> yeah, so she's <laughs> real respectful about it, but at the same time, she's like, "All right, <laughs> that's cool, good for you." And you know, pat me on the head, you know. But she hadn't seen like outside of the town of Birmingham. Like she hadn't seen like real, real Alabama. No, I didn't want her running away. No, No, Joey, she's never been to Talladega. (laughs) I thought Talladega was like customs for Alabama. You had to go through there. (laughs) I didn't want to take her away and hear the banjos playing going down the river. No, none of that. None of that. Well, boys, getting into some actual concrete content, if you go a little bit further west of Alabama, but to an area where uh, there is even less population, uh, you will find... <laughs> okay, that's a segue. I like it. Where you are we going? That's, I'll just try. That's as good as I could do. Uh, <laughs> we're talking about 3D printing here today. And in El Paso, Texas, more specifically Fort Bliss, 
in El Paso, Texas. The U.S. Department of Defense is currently undertaking uh, a plan to print 3D concrete printed barracks. They're printing three of them, each one measuring 5,700 square foot. So a little bit larger than your standard two-bedroom house that a lot of people think of when they think of concrete yeah. 3D printing. Uh, they announced the plan uh, just a couple weeks ago. The article that I'm reading from was published yesterday. Um, and this particular project will be the largest 3D printed structure in the Western Hemisphere. I mean, obviously, it's not the Burj Khalifa or whatever they, <laughs> whatever they printed out there in Dubai. That was absolutely well, astronomical. But. Yeah, but it's still cool. And if you go to Icon's, web, Icon's the company mm -hmm. that's going to build them. If you go to their website and they've got some pretty cool write-ups about it, yeah. it, it's going to look pretty cool. Yeah, well, and, and I think the important thing to note here is the U.S. military is adopting the technology. I mean, that, I think that's the biggest takeaway here. and The fact that they're completing a 3D printed project for new barracks in less than 10 months, which for any government project to happen within less than a year, that's lightning fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, that's you know, funny. So that's, that's pretty cool. And then, you know, also staying in the state of Texas, but, um, you know, talking about the actual residential part of it, Sun Economy is a, a fairly large company um, down in, in like the western part of, of Texas, um, and they're 3D printing like an, an entire, I guess you'd call block or cell okay. of homes, and they're all you know single single family homes that they can print and complete in a day. Oh my gosh! So is a 24 hour print cycle, and that gets you a three bedroom two bathroom with a detached garage and solar and wind battery backup section within the house. It also comes complete with rainwater containment systems and these houses will be sold for an estimated cost of about 289, let's call it 300 grand. Yeah, cool. Is uh, Who's the printer? Is that company the printer or they're like the GC home builder? They are the GC home builder. Is Icon doing that? Apis Core. Apis Core. Okay, because I actually didn't see the article you're reading from. I was actually independently yesterday was looking at a different article about the DOD project with those army barracks, um, and I was on Icon's site, and they are also talking about building a 100 residential home yeah. neighborhood, uh, basically the same thing. I don't think the houses are that big, yeah. um, but similar concept, uh, you know, going to go ahead and build a whole neighborhood of these 3D printed homes. And, you know, the thing that I thought was interesting is their idea is different from what I think is going to really blow this thing out of the water, is they're not making the houses look traditional. Right. They're making the houses have curved exterior walls rather mm -hmm. than sharp angles like we're used to houses being rectangles or almost like modular boxes. They're, they're not doing that. And they're going to have the concrete exposed on the outside and they're going to have a lot of wood elements and you know i think that is interesting i'm just concerned that you're limiting your buyer's market that you're going to be going after people that are really oh i want a novel house that is green rather than saying well, we can build you a normal house that's also green and 3d concrete printed and just looks like a house it doesn't have to look like you know you went back to the flintstone era 
to live because that's what they look like to me. Yeah, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. These curved walls. It reminds me of something Fred Flintstone would be walking into. Yeah, straight up pueblos or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, man, we could make these look so good. But you know, I don't know if it's because they want to like show off the art form or whatever. But uh, but yeah, just I think I, I think this is a great first step because you know we're all about the technology. We want these guys to do well. I'm not trying to crap on them. I'm just saying, like, this is a cool first step. I can't wait for them to take that leap, and yeah. we can have things that look like houses. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. I hear you. But, I mean, for, for that area of the country in, you know, West Texas, if you if you go north, I mean, that's Tornado Alley, right? And mm-hmm. they even talk about in this article, I mean, they're building homes that can withstand 220-mile-an-hour winds, E5 tornadoes, and 8.0-plus earthquakes and yeah. stuff like that. So, wow. I mean, if you really want to, if you really want to stick it to the the stick built industry, I mean, those are some stats that are going to be pretty hard to beat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hundred percent. I was, like I said, I was just in Birmingham. I was going to my buddy's new house, and the best feature in his house to me was the tornado shelter room. Yeah, <laughs> he had a, a foot thick concrete walls of like a five by five area, and if if a tornado is coming, I mean, that's where you go. That's going to be mm-hmm. standing forever. Right. Well, I wonder if you have a concrete house, you know, in Tornado Alley, how much easier is it get to like, is it easier to get tornado insurance or something like that? Like, hey, I have this house that can withstand all this, all these things. You know, what's my insurance rate going to look like versus the guy down the road that's got a stick house? The answer is yes. I shouldn't say for Tornado Alley. I don't have the exact stats there, but down in southern Alabama on the Panhandle of Florida, yes. So they have hurricane uh, mm-hmm. problems and. So the insurance companies, when you're building your house, if you build it out of concrete, you get like the highest rated this way, and they give you a discount on the insurance because the home's going to be there. It's going to be standing at the end. And in Alabama, I'll never forget, this was, I believe, 2011, when the 2011 tornadoes came through, which were just absolutely awful. April 27, 2011, just, I mean, hundreds of tornadoes, a lot of them EF4 and EF5s, just just ravaged the state of Alabama and there was a uh, a neighborhood outside of Birmingham and the entire neighborhood was gone just a pile of uh, you know what looked like toothpicks because it was like an aerial photo it was like 200 houses or something crazy all gone but one (laughs) the one house in the neighborhood that was made out of concrete was still standing perfectly fine all the other ones were just not there yeah Wow. Yeah, that's pretty wild. So, yeah, I mean, eventually they'll – I think they'll catch up with the design elements and the aesthetics of it. But, I mean, you certainly can't – you can't knock the effectiveness of concrete houses, especially down there in Tornado Alley where they're really building them, whether it's Apis Core, Icon. I mean, they all have a huge foothold down in that region of, of our country anyway. And with the adoption of the technology from our, our own government and their infinite amount of resources, there ain't no telling where the technology can go from there. But what else y'all got? Well, I've got something interesting that our good friend and previous multi-episode guest of the pod, Dr. Belkowitz, uh, he and I were chatting on the phone one day about some other things, and he told me to look up the Sand Mafia. Now, when he originally said Sand Mafia, I course had my doubts like sand mafia what what in the world is this you know they're called the taliban guys (laughs) (laughs) my god 
We're gonna have to we're gonna have to give this a few minutes. <laughs> Add ten after dark. Add ten after dark. Here we go. So when Dr. Belkowitz first told me about the Sand Mafia, I, I was like, what in the world is this nonsense, you know? What kind of stuff is he cooked up now? But I looked into it, and it's actually pretty interesting. Uh, actually, what the Sand Mafia is is basically a legal strip mining of sand in India. There's actually a black market for sand, and it's legit like mafia you know, activity. You know, there, there's extortion. Uh, the mafia or mafia miners, I guess you could call them, they've killed law enforcement officers uh, that have tried to enforce, you know, these laws about, you know, over, over mining of the sand. They've killed journalists that are trying to expose and, you know, uh, and put the message out there about, about everything that's going on. So why, how did it get to this? So we all know or we know now, or I know after reading the article, uh, that sand is is in a lot of things. Just like when you know when we started with active minerals, we had no idea clay was in so many industries. Well, sand's in everything too. You know, major product being you know glass. You know, the glass in our smartphones has got sand in it, and all the the list is is endless of what sand is in. And there was a UN study not long ago that uh, that calculated the world's consumption of sand. And the world consumes 40 billion tons of sand every year. You know, what difference does that make? Well, that 40 billion tons is actually double the amount that gets naturally replenished by the earth every year. Via, you know, uh, erosion, like from mountaintops or flooding. You know, flooding will wash sand downriver to, you know, whatever uh, area where they're, that they're dredging. So it's going to be a big deal. And we see that. You know, of course, here in our work, just here in the states, where sand is getting scarce in certain areas, um, and just like here, uh, everywhere else, you know, river sand is the best sand. Desert sand is a little too round, you know, for binding, and sometimes it's too fine. And then, of course, marine sand is too corrosive. So river sand's where it's at. So in India, they're having a real hard time you know, supplying themselves with sand, and they're taking certain measures to try to limit the amount of mining of the sand. Well, this state, there's a state in India called, if I pronounce this right, Uttar Pradesh, pardon my Tennessee pronunciation of that state, they actually banned large-scale industrial mining of sand. But you can actually still have a manual mining operation, which... I, they didn't really describe it in the article, but I can only imagine it's a bunch of old boys with picks and shovels and buckets. <laughs> bunch of slave labor. Yeah. Yep. So you're probably right. And the reason they're so concerned about, you know, the overmining of sand is that stripping the rivers of their sand is causing the water tables to drop. So when you make a, basically you dig a hole in a river or dig a giant section of river out, it's going to drop the water table, which may not seem like a big deal, but when you live in an arid area or region and your water table drops a couple of feet, you know, that's a big deal. I mean, you're, you're losing crops. You're, you're losing ways to, you know, to grow things. And as we know, too, sand is getting shipped enormous distances, you know, not just from Montgomery to Birmingham, like uh, some of the guys we know down there, but Australia is shipping sand to Arabia which is kind of hard to believe. Just like we, just like I mentioned earlier, though, desert sand. You know, you can't really use that for a whole lot of things. So Australia is actually shipping good sand up to the Middle East. Um, and China, uh, there was a study done that between 2011 and 2014, they poured more concrete 
between 2011 and 2014 than the United States did in the entire 20th century. So that's how much sand that they're using. Yeah, yeah, they're building gigantic empty cities out in the middle of nowhere because that's what dictatorships do. They build big, great things. Yep. What? (laughs) They built an empty city. Yeah, more or less. For what? The Olympics. <laughs> Are we about to have conspiracy corner nope. with Josh here? <laughs> nope. Oh, man, Paul, we just laid just it out for you. Paul, hang on. <laughs> he teed that up. Yeah. I need this to be hit out of the park. Wait a minute. Giant empty. All right, we're going to get back to Josh in a second. Joey, <laughs> please continue with this sand shipment story. So, uh... You know, with China, you know, being the number one consumer of pretty much everything on Earth, uh, <laughs> India ranked second in uh, in their sand consumption. It didn't give the data or how much that uh, that they're that they're using, but that's what they're doing. Because of this ban on large scale sand mining, of course, that opened up the black market for sand, and it got so out of hand that it was, uh, you know, it was deadly, and people are killing people over sand. And, you know, it's not just that, you know, of course, with any kind of, you know, organized crime, you have to pay royalties to policemen, uh, politicians, anybody with some power. And why that's important is the royalties to those politicians and police, they have inflated the price of illegal sand from 15,000 rupees a truckload, which is about $200. So it inflated it from $200 a truckload up to between $530 to $1,100 a truckload of sand. So, yeah, thank you, Dr. Belkowitz, for turning me on to that. And I'm definitely going to look up uh, look up some more articles and may- maybe I'll find some videos about that. But, yeah, the sand mafia in India. Wow, that's crazy. But if you're going to allow manual mining, I mean, you're just asking for, like, you know, child labor, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. Just horrible stuff to be taking on because they do that in other countries too where they do the manual mining. And it sounds crazy to us mm-hmm. because we're so used to like, oh, if it's going to be a mine, we're going to see all these big machines. But the one I always go back to is they get that big UFC fighter, Francis Ngannou, who's a heavyweight champion. And uh, that's like what he grew up doing. You know, he's 12 years old in sand mines. And that's how he got big and strong. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, just, it's just bananas that there's a sand mafia. That's, <laughs> that's so crazy. All right. You ready for me? I got receipts. <laughs> I was born ready for this. All right. <clears throat> I, I tried to I tried to cite a Wall Street Journal article, but I couldn't get past the paywall. So I'm reading you from a Wired article. Nonetheless, they're still... I mean, they're just as journalistic as the Wall Street Journal people are, let's be honest. I would have gave you my login. (laughs) (laughs) Title of this article is The Unreal Eerie Emptiness of China's Ghost Cities. Subtitle is Build It and They Will Come, Except No One Has. The Kangbashi district of Ordos, China, is a marble of urban planning. There's 137 square miles of shining towers, futuristic architecture, pristine parks, all carved out of the grassland of Inner Mongolia. It's a thoroughly modern city, uh, but no one lives there. It's one of hundreds, they state in this article, of sparkling new cities sitting relatively empty throughout China, built by a government eager to urbanize the country, but it's being shunned by people who either can't afford it or they're hesitant to leave the rural communities in which they live. Hundreds of cities. That's what they say. There yeah. it goes. All right. Um, I'm sorry. I got to stop you for a second. I 
am 230 pages into the 320-page book, 1984, by George Orwell. Yeah. And it's a good read. One of the crazy things about that is that the government needed to continue to create things but did not want to increase the standards of living and the availability of things for the people so they could keep them relatively where they are and as far as status and comfort and different things. So they had like never-ending war in that case. So Mm -hmm. the war machine was always going. It was always predicting. So it gave people a sense of purpose, a sense of patriotism, a, a place to work. They were constantly consuming things, but it was never really going anywhere. It wasn't improving society. And so you're sitting here telling me that this communist country is uh, churning out ghost cities so that they have a place <laughs> for people to work, people to spend money, all this stuff. And I'm just, just over here, like, freaking out. <laughs> like, Orwell was right. Yeah. He was right about a lot of things. But yeah, but apparently over the last three decades, China has built hundreds of new cities in an attempt to reshape itself into an urbanized nation and the goal is to move about 250 million rural inhabitants hmm. which is i mean 250 million is is quite a bit what's what's our total population That's about 330 330 million so yeah wow that's crazy and to think they could have been buying actagel for all that i don't care if anybody <laughs> lives in it <laughs> exactly as long as the check clears <laughs> yeah, yeah, as long as the which, check clears, you ain't lying. Which, yeah, apparently that that is an issue. But, yeah, I mean, just a quick uh, quick search here for – I just typed in giant empty cities in China. There's <laughs> countless articles, and the, the pictures are absolutely jaw-dropping. So you not only are, like, producing our podcast, you are also now Jamie from the Joe Rogan Show. You're also yeah, – pull that up, man. Man of many hats. We do it all here at Active Minerals. Like, we are <laughs> we are five positions in one. Yeah. The only thing – one of these days, <clears throat> I want to get into a conversation about Smyrna Ready Mix. Mm-hmm. Oh, just buying everything? Buying everything. And that was yeah. a big news story last week that they yeah. just announced. Everybody yeah. is talking about them, too. You know, just like yeah, I was, no, I was telling yeah. you, the guys in Las Vegas were talking about them. The guys in Chattanooga were talking about them last week, too. I was just on the phone with NRMCA last week about something, and they were talking about them, too. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should get into it, then. Yeah. Let's make some waves. they got to see something we don't, because the whole industry is talking about it. Guys have been making waves for about five years now, really making waves. Uh, the Hollingsheads have been buying anybody and everybody they can get their hands on. Started out just a couple plants in Middle Tennessee, and next thing you know, more than a decade later, uh, these guys just own what seems like everybody. Uh, you know, big announcement got made recently that they bought the Martin Marietta properties, the the, the Colorado division now that was formerly Lafarge, um, and they bought the what I believe are the San Antonio operations. But none of the announcements actually said which. Martin Marietta plants were sold off, but, you know, we we know a guy, and uh, we think that's what it was, but can't confirm. So, anyway, they, they did that. They bought some guy in, like, Wyoming, and the word on the street is these dudes at Smyrna Ready Mix, they want to have a plant in every state. They want to be all across the country. They've already got 4,000 employees. I mean, that's insane. A ready mix guy who started out as a mom and pop, still, you know, family owned, 
has 4,000 employees. I think 4,500 now since uh, – or 5,000. Their website says 5,000. The press release said 4,000. So, mm. you know, whatever. A lot of people. Um, you know, one of the big things that everybody wants to know is where are they getting the money for this? Because they're buying 20, 30 plants at a time. Yeah. And they're buying plants uh, that, you know, may not be the the overproduction – profitability centers that one company says they are and they go in and they're like don't care we want them and they're going in they're making money so i'm looking at this from the outside with a lot of other people you know y'all are talking to guys and this is a hot topic because it feels like every month smart is buying somebody and what i can't understand and i don't think anybody understands we're like man there's there's some money behind this where's it coming from and I started thinking, you know, it may not be nefarious. <laughs> sometimes it's just something we don't understand. And I kind of go back to a principle of, of finance. One of the things that, that one of the guys that I listened to being Dave Ramsey down in Tennessee. And, you know, he says do everything with cash, right? Move at the speed of cash. And he said that if it takes a while to buy your first one. But once you've bought the first one and you use that cash flow to save to buy the next one now you've got flash cash flow of two or three properties that allow you to more quickly save to buy the fourth and now you got cash flow from four or five properties and now you can more quickly buy the sixth and if you actually go back to these guys and you actually look at like the timeline of how they built this company it's entirely possible that if their only goal is growth that they're cash flow in this a lot of it Maybe not all of it. I mean, it is the business world. People take on debt. Debt's been cheap last few years. So I'm not saying there's no debt here. But that doesn't mean that they're leveraged up to their eyeballs. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really interesting to go back and look, and it is a clear pattern. It feels to us like they came out of nowhere. A rocket ship to the moon, suddenly they own everything. But if you actually go back and look at the start of the company, it's actually a pretty slow growth. They had one plant, then a, then five years later, they got three plants. Four years later, they got a couple more plants. Three years after that, they've got a couple more. Two years after that, then one year after that, and then every year after that. And and so it's actually almost like a, a perfect curve of what you would do if you were saving your money and like, okay, I'm going to put this toward buying things. So my guess is this has been a master plan for a long time, and I, I think that a lot of us have just seen we think it's overnight right and i don't think it's overnight i think these guys are thinking this thing through and this is speaking as someone who has zero knowledge (laughs) we are (laughs) one thousand percent speculating like most people are but just looking at that growth curve um, i think these guys might be doing it the right way and i'd love to talk to them further about it yeah we'll we'll try to get somebody from that company on the show for our own personal benefit it would make a great show but like i want to talk to somebody from srm for sure because like you said everybody's been talking about it but yeah everybody's thought is that there's like some outside investor with tons of money or these guys are have debt up their eyeballs yeah Mm -hmm. but knowing what i know from listening to dave ramsey all that time you go back and look at how this company's grown they might actually be doing this in a way that is you know very 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 smart right Right. Mm-hmm. Or, or at the very least, not incurring 100% debt. Maybe yeah. they are cash flowing a portion of it. Yeah, absolutely. They could be doing growing what seems crazy has actually been in the works for a long time. Yeah. And so if they've got cash flow coming in from all these other plants, 
you know, man. Uh, yeah, well, let's. With all that being said, we covered a lot. I mean, that was probably one of our more in-depth uh, current event sections there. So, without further ado, let's get into our guest here. Uh, we got Luai Curdy. He is the founder and CEO of Print 4D. Super excited. I nerded out over this interview, like, cause I, you know, I'm a 3D printer myself, but it's all like you know plastic filament stuff, but the mechanics still apply. Whereas the 3D printing mechanics are way more. It's the same concept, but way more intricate. I got a 3D printer that's an X, Y, and Z axis, but you know they actually have a, a robotic arm type printer where they have a six axis uh, wow. printer instead of a three axis printer. And Luai, he goes into detail about that and, and many other things. And we berate him with questions and he answers them very, very well, very knowledgeable, very succinctly. And it's, it's a great interview. Can't wait for you guys to listen to it. So without any, without any further ado, here's our guest, Luai Curdy from Print 4D. All right, ladies and gentlemen, today on the program, we have Luai Curdy from Print 4D. We really appreciate you being here, Luai. Hi, how's it going? Uh, going good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, we're, we're really ecstatic to have you on the program here today because for the last couple episodes, we've talked about 3D printing at length. Um, and none of us really know what we're talking about. Uh, so we needed to get an expert in here to talk about it. Uh, backstory, I 3D print myself, but with your typical plastic filaments, um, I got a I got a home unit and it runs constantly. I'm always printing off that thing. Um, mm -hmm. So from what I know, it is it is spe uh, specific to printing uh, PLA plastic filaments all the way up through nylon filaments, but plastic nonetheless. And my build plate is 11 inches square. So we're going to take that concept and extrapolate it to uh, printing concrete um, in large volumes, big enough to print something that you could actually live in. So. Somehow we're going to bridge that gap, and you're going to be here to help us do it. All right, I'll do my best. <laughs> right on. Well, first and foremost, let's give the uh, the listeners a, a little bit of background, a, a story on you know who you are, where you grew up, um, what your profession is, and what led you into the 3D printing concrete world. Yep. Uh, well, I'm uh, an architect. I uh, grew up in Jordan. That's my home country. I'm from the capital Amman. Um, and basically I graduated uh, from Jordan and uh, after that uh, I left Jordan to uh, do my uh, masters where I specialized in digital fabrication and advanced uh, manufacturing techniques uh, where I got more into 3D uh, printing um, and ever since I left uh, my, my home country Jordan uh, I've remained outside of the country I haven't lived there uh, ever since then that was around eight years ago so I've been traveling traveling around working in different countries uh, and actually uh, uh, to, to give you to share with you a fact for the past uh, 10 years I've lived in uh, seven different countries uh, so traveling around a lot uh, uh, learning uh, from uh, everywhere that I go uh, and kind of you know uh, uh, being introduced to new cultures, uh, to new languages, and uh, that's that's kind of uh, uh, something that I'm also interested in. Uh, so, as I mentioned, like I'm an architect, uh, and then I'm uh, today I'm more focused on 3D concrete printing. I've been doing it uh, for full time for the past three years, and uh, basically, as a, as an architect, I really wanted to bridge uh, the gap between uh, design. Uh, and fabrication 
Uh, and that's where I saw 3D concrete printing is really uh, the tool to do so. Uh, it opens up uh, a lot of possibilities for architects and designers uh, and gives you the tools to do that. Um, and basically, I think personally, this is the future of construction. Well, we've, we've certainly heard that a lot. Uh, we've heard the, you know, 3D printing is the future of construction. It will, it will become a very useful tool to alleviate a lot of the labor shortages uh, that a lot of these contracting and construction companies are being faced with. But, you know, there, there are many unknowns and there are many things that, that need to be addressed before we can look at 3D printing as a viable option for for everything, a, a fix-all for the industry, if you will. So talking about, you know, where 3D printing got its start. Well, let's talk about 3D printing in general. So 3D printing, the concept started in the 1980s. Um, 1984, the STL file was invented, which is essentially the program that is used to, to talk to the software that slices in layers uh, for, the, for the printer to actually print. Um, down the road, you know, through the late 80s into the early 90s, things were, you know, the technology was developing. Um, the mid-90s, like 96 or 97, we, we figured out how to print with, uh, 3D print with metal. Um, 99, we started printing 3D, um, started medical 3D printing. I believe it was at Wake Forest, they started printing scaffolds for bladders using human tissue to 3D print. Um, and then, you know, 2008, you had the first 3D printed prosthetic. Um, and then 2019, you get the largest ever printed uh, 3D concrete building in Dubai. Now, with, with your background, where does concrete fit in with that timeline? When was it, when was the concept kind of intertwined with the history of 3D printing in general? And how far has it come since then? Yeah. Yep. Uh, well, actually, uh, you know, uh, 3D printing uh, for construction uh, has been there since quite a long time. Um, um, uh, it was actually in the 1930s. Uh, you have um, in the U.S. Uh, actually, um, I think it's called the Urschel uh, uh, 3D printer, where they uh, were using uh, not. Uh, uh, not the modern uh, uh, type of concrete, but a very similar material to construct uh, buildings. So it, it's been there since the, the 1930s. Uh, but of course, uh, you know, uh, some hurdles uh, uh, were faced uh, for, for the uh, technology and kind of got lost in the way. Uh, but then uh, just recently, uh, with the development of, uh, you know, uh, 3D uh, printers and uh, robotics uh, and, to, of course, with the um, new softwares uh, that enable us to better control the, the printers and, and uh, do more uh, interesting designs with them. Because in the past, of course, the software was one of the biggest hurdles because uh, if you wanted to design a really... Uh, complex and uh, uh, curvy uh, wall elements in concrete, for example, you would have to uh, learn the programming language of a certain uh, robot uh, and kind of uh, program it manually and uh, to create a, a, a complex uh, geometry that's not an easy task to do, uh, even for an experienced uh, programmer. Uh, so slowly the software started to um, catch up and make it a bit easier to communicate 
as, a, as an architect, a designer with the robotics and the equipment. And that's when it kind of opened up the, the space for development of new technology. So we started using concrete uh, in, in the additive manufacturing uh, process. Uh, and then we, we you know, moved it on to the next stages where we implemented it into the project. Awesome. So as the software is improving and the methods are becoming, I don't want to say easier, but easier to replicate anyway, um, what, was, what was the original purpose for 3D printing as it relates to concrete? Was it for kind of an artistic architectural design element or was the purpose of concrete 3D printing always to uh, build these, these massive residential or commercial structures? Or are they, are they two very different industries that are under the same 3D printing umbrella? Yeah, well, uh, I think even like today, uh, the, the largest uh, 3D printers, uh, the Gantry, the, um, the main brand, Cobot, is able to print, uh, you know, two-story high, uh, maybe sometimes three-story high, but it's still uh, a small construction project if you compare it to a mall, for example, or a hospital or, or something like that. The technology is not there today. Uh, to, to print uh, at least in one go the whole uh, large construction project. Uh, and uh, the other approach would be, you know, the one that I've been using personally, which is a modular uh, construction approach where uh, we are using a robotic arm to 3D print uh, modules, wall modules, that are easily uh, prefabricated within a factory setting that can be shipped to the site and uh, in practice, the scale is not an issue here because you're printing modules. You can print as many modules as you want to create any uh, space or enclosure. Um, so this is, this is where it, it's at today. The reason it started 3D printing, I think, uh, one of the things was uh, explore, exploration of uh, how can we uh, create complex architecture uh, with this technology because, of course, with 3D printing, you don't need to... Uh, create uh, a mold or fabricate a mold which is typically a wooden mold or a steel mold that you would need to cast with concrete to achieve this kind of uh, geometries. So with 3D printing you eliminate that completely uh, so it cuts down the time to uh, pr produce the same uh, piece that you would have taken months to produce with uh, a wooden mold um, and then it started uh, slowly shifting towards construction and how can we utilize it in a construction setting. So obviously way before COVID, way before uh, we got to a point of a diminishing labor force and obviously the diminishing labor force was, was an issue before COVID and then between 2019 and, and what we have today, everything that happened and transpired within that time just kind of accelerated an issue that we already had. But from what I understand through the modular approach and, be, and being able to prefab items, almost like hollow core pieces or tilt up walls, the same concept, but being able to do that and to ship them to the job sites. Speaking personally, I look at 3D printing and then one of the main benefits is, well, you don't need as many people. Uh, you don't need as many people to batch the concrete, to place the concrete, so on and so forth. But from what I just understood, you can kind of take that one step further and you can actually prefab pieces that previously weren't able to be prefabbed by, by just one person or one machine. So that modular approach, are, are you talking about making structural concrete pieces like a hollow core wall 
or are you talking more about making like uh, precast pieces, like decorative precast pieces or culverts or? Actually, I've, I've worked on all of those, uh, all of those applications. Uh, I've covered all of them. I've, I've printed all of uh, these kind of applications. But what's more interesting for me, if we're talking about uh, buildings and construction projects or houses, is a fully uh, structural uh, 3D printed uh, uh, wall element, uh, where basically you can think about it as a, as a Lego. Uh, you're printing uh, the different modules. Uh, you know, the, the full height of a wall can be two pieces, can be three pieces. It really depends on, on what you're trying to achieve and, and, and how high you want to go. And you can print these structural wall modules that be, can be assembled on site together. Uh, and that uh, really uh, uh, allows you to eliminate the use of other uh, reinforcement methods such as uh, steel reinforcement. Because uh, if you are uh, printing a load-bearing wall system, you don't need a steel reinforcement column or, or you don't need a column at all uh, inside these walls uh, and you can transfer the loads uh, directly from the roof to the, to the walls. That's incredible. You actually answered the next question was, you know, is there steel in this concrete? But, um, you know, you're, you're a step ahead of me, but let's go, let's go to the concrete mix design itself. And, and we can be specific to your, your previous example of, uh, you know, a, a residential structure. What does that mix design look like and how does it differ from your typical standard 3000 or 5000 PSI uh, concrete? Yep. Uh, well, I will need to do a quick conversion because I'm not really familiar with the PSI. Uh, I will just, uh, yeah, let me do a conversion uh, from megapascal to PSI. So the concrete that I'm currently working with has a uh, compressive strength of 7,250 uh, PSI. Um, so it's quite a, a strong uh, concrete material. The only difference between it uh, and the traditional one is that it's, uh, of course, it has special additives and chemicals that allows it to build on top of each other. Because as you know, like uh, traditional concrete is more fluid and it just kind of, uh, you know, flows like water, uh, more or less, depending on the, on, the, on the amount of water that you add to it. But con 3D uh, concrete material needs to be uh, more uh, dry and it needs to build on top of each other uh, so you can actually create the geometry. So those are the, that's the purpose of the additives and the chemicals in, in the mix. Uh, on, another on another aspect, uh, the size of the aggregates compared to the, to the traditional concrete are much smaller. Uh, so, to some people it could look more like a mortar material than a concrete material because you're not really able to see the aggregates inside. Okay, okay. But the, there is aggregate there, it's just uh, smaller aggregate is what you're saying? It's, it's very small ag aggregates, around two millimeters. Okay. Well, I guess the, the water cement ratio will, will, would be, uh, I guess, typically lower as well because you said that, you know, the mix isn't quite as fluid. No, but and then I, I would imagine your, your cement content is fairly high in comparison? Um, I think it's more or less uh, slightly higher than normal concrete. So the extrusion that you need for the concrete as it comes out of the nozzle when it's printed, you get those characteristics, those flow characteristics, you achieve that with additives? Uh, yes, well, the, that's also one thing uh, to note is that we ourselves, like we are not, uh, you know, we partner with uh, the material uh, experts that uh, manufacture the material for us. Uh, we work with Sika, 
I've been working with them for um, over the past three years, uh, developing the material and testing it. So they're really the experts on this topic. But basically, yeah, they uh, we the material that we get is a ready mix. It's a, in a powder form. Um, either we get it in 25 kilogram bags or we get it in jumbo bags, one and a half uh, ton. Um, and basically, it's a, it's a ready powder. Uh, it has all of the additives in it. Uh, that makes it 3D printable. We simply add water to it uh, in the right amount uh, and you know, supply it into our systems. So you are taking uh, dry bagged material, mixing it with water on site, and that's how you're, you're supplying the printer. Yep. So you don't have ready mix trucks coming in and out of the job site. You have your, your supply of dry material that you, you mix down on site. Yep. And the reason why it needs to be dry in comparison to a truck is because uh, this material uh, uh, hardens fast, meaning that it has a, a high amount of accelerator in it, uh, and you can't just mix it all together at once. It needs to be just mixed before the extrusion. I'm going to attempt to ask this question. <clears throat> Josh, you may just cut me out and repeat my question if my <laughs> voice is too messed up. But um, I'm curious to know, so... You're mixing it on site. What are you mixing it in? And I'm assuming it's, it gets pumped uh, some way, yeah. shape, or form to the extruder. Can you kind of walk us through that process? Yep, you, you just actually uh, placed your finger on the most complex and the complicated part of uh, 3D concrete printing is that uh, you want the material to set fast so you can build the layers uh, very fast. But at the same time, you don't want it to set that fast that it can not flow through the uh, you know the hose uh, arriving to the nozzle so this is the the dilemma that we work with and this is why the the material part is very important is that you want uh, to have uh, the material uh, flowable enough so it can uh, pass through the hose all the way to the nozzle but once it is extruded from the nozzle you want it to set fast so uh, th this is where, where a lot of uh, you know, small details are, are uh, really important, such as the water content uh, that you are uh, adding to the mix, uh, and you really need high control over that. Uh, but basically, uh, we have the uh, powder coming in uh, uh, separately, and we have the water coming in separately. Uh, we have it mixed uh, and sent to the, through the pump. Uh, into a hose that connects the uh, pumping mechanism with the nozzle uh, and basically the nozzle is attached to our printer or robotic arm uh, where uh, it makes the movements according to the uh, programming code that we, we uh, send to the, to the printer and the material is extruded. Uh, the, the printer itself, the nozzle, how it's applied, obviously these, these shapes can be very uh, intricate at times so as far as how you place the concrete and develop a shape of whatever it is you're printing, you essentially have an X, Y, and Z axis like you do in, in every other 3D thing that's ever made. But how, how does that work? You have your robotic arm. So the robotic arm takes care of all three of those axes, or do you have a, a gantry that takes care yeah. of the X? Or how, how does that work in, a, in, a, yeah. in geometry speak? <laughs> So, so this is uh, what uh, differentiates uh, a robotic uh, printer from a gantry system. So a gantry system is basically working with the XY uh, coordinates, um, such as the, you know, the desktop 3D printer that you're familiar with. Uh, however, the robotic arm uh, works with six axes. Uh, 
so basically you have much more freedom uh, in the range of movement and uh, basically you can really um, compare the robotic arm to your normal arm that you have on your hand uh, is because you have the joints that can give you more control over all of the directions uh, in six six axes basically uh, and uh, with the the robotic arm printer you don't really have to print uh, horizontally every time you don't need to print horizontal lines you can uh, start to print uh, what we call uh, non-planar uh, surfaces so you can go uh, and print the first layer is curved in this direction and then the next one comes on top so it opens up also uh, for more possibilities uh, to, to print uh, objects that are not emerging in a, a linear horizontal manner uh, and that's what really differentiates the, 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 the robotic arm is that it gives you more freedom uh, in, in the additive manufacturing process. Do you work with, is it G-code? Is that what you're using as, as like the language there? Um, it's, it, it's a robot code, it's a robot code, uh, okay. but it's kind of similar to a G-code because basically it's a, it's a point map or point cloud, uh, basically that defines that every point has a, in, in, in a printer it's an XYZ, but with the robotic arm it's uh, the six axis definition. So it's like more, three, three more coordinates for the robot to to reach. Right, right. Yeah, I'm I'm sure it's way more complicated than than what I deal with and what I actually think is complicated. You don't you don't know what you don't know, I suppose is what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, but but let's talk about quality. I mean, you're you're talking about the what you're able to do with the 6-axis system and uh, it's it's, you know, very intricate and very advanced, but let's talk quality because if there is a dig from people of the unknown on the 3D printing industry is that sometimes it's not always aesthetically pleasing because it's just stacked lines together. And obviously some prints look better than others yeah. and it's that way with any type of 3D printing. Yeah. But when you look at, how, how do you hone in on quality? What are some things that you need to take into consideration if you want uh, a 3D printed house to look better than say, um, you know, how, how do you make the prints look better? Yeah, um, well, there's uh, is a really good question, and uh, to answer you, like I, I have like uh, I'll split it in two uh, parts. Uh, in terms of quality, uh, you have the quality that can address uh, the structural uh, integrity of the printed uh, wall, uh, and then you have the quality that can address the aesthetics of the wall. Uh, in terms of the structural uh, integrity of the wall, is is really vital to have uh, always uh, a structurally sound uh, printed wall uh, without any cracks, uh, major cracks, I mean, any kind of cracks that will, uh, you know, jeopardize the uh, structural integrity and the stability of the wall. So that, that structural part is out of question. Like, you are not supposed to uh, print something that has minor cracks and you're like oh okay but at least you know we have a little bit of cracks it should should be okay no when it comes to structure uh, there's no messing uh, about uh, with that like it needs to be structurally sound uh, you're only like fooling yourself at the end of the day but when it comes to the um, aesthetic uh, you know um, quality of it then it's not really a structural element but it's more like a visual element so it, it doesn't really matter if it looks 
uh, really nice or a little bit nice uh, or ugly or, or so. But of course, the desire is to have a really nice uh, printed layers that are consistent and um, you know uh, can be left as a final uh, finish for the building. So also the advantage of 3D uh, concrete printing is that, at least to me and, and the work that I'm doing, is that the ability that I'm, I'm able to print a wall uh, with a concrete material, a really nice finish, and I'm able to leave it as a final finish uh, without additional plastering, without additional painting. And what, basically, what that basically does is that you know, it cuts out all of the additional labor uh, and work that, ne that traditionally needs to be done in-house. Uh, so it accelerates it, saves the money, saves the time, etc. Now on the other hand, uh, you know, if you have a finish that is not really uh, uh, appealing, uh, you can simply finish it all, uh, finish on top of it with a plastering material uh, to cover it up. Um, and I, I assume um, at the end of the day, you know, it will be a personal preference from a client's point of view if they want the lines to show or they don't want the lines to show. Uh, and in some cases, even if the lines are the nicest finish ever, you might just have someone that just doesn't want to see the lines uh, and will cover them up. And honestly, I mean, that's the way the construction market is now, especially residential-wise. residential, residential -wise. I mean, you have some houses that are all brick, brick and siding, um, different different types of stucco. I mean, the, the options are, are endless. So, uh, you know, why shouldn't it be that way for 3D printing as well? But uh, let's, let's pivot a little bit here. Um, I, I want to talk about your company, Print4D. Uh, you're based in Prague, correct? Yes, in Czech Republic, yes. Okay, all right. Well... Uh, you know, we get we get into economics a decent amount in this show. We've had an economist on, and you know, mm -hmm. at the end of the day, we work for a company, and and our uh, our goal is to make money, right? If it doesn't make dollars, it doesn't make sense. So, 3D printing is cool. Yep. It's super interesting. But you own a, you own a business now. You own a company. So, you know, who's your primary yes. target? Who's your demographic? How are you using this 3D printing technology to make money? Yep. Um, well, the reason that uh, we, we are we uh, situated, let's say, the, the company uh, in Czech Republic is because the Czech Republic is a central uh, country uh, in Europe and basically we're able to reach our clients, you know, in the Middle East, in America, uh, in, in Africa, you know, within a reasonable uh, reach. Uh, so that, that's one of the uh, factors that, that we took into consideration. but. Today, uh, you know, over the past year, ever since we, uh, I founded uh, Print4D, uh, I've noticed uh, like a literal explosion in interest uh, when it comes to 3D printing. And, uh, you know, uh, with more projects uh, rising to the surface and people are able to understand uh, the advantages of the technology and how they can utilize it for, for their own projects, uh, I have, we have, you know, uh, received a lot of demand uh, from clients all around the world that would like to implement uh, this technology uh, into their project. So today what we're doing basically is we're helping our clients, uh, you know, to achieve their goals in the fastest way uh, possible by providing uh, 3D concrete printing as a full solution to them. Uh, so, you know, they don't need to uh, spend years uh, researching and understanding how it works uh, and what is the, the uh, right way to do it. So we provide our uh, know-how and expertise uh, to them um, and we sell the printer uh, as a finished, uh, let's say, uh, uh, hardware and software uh, and we do train them also 
um, how to print and how to use the equipment and how to design uh, for 3D printing and all of that. Uh, so they're able to immediately start uh, printing for their projects, you know, within uh, a month or, or so. So your business model is selling printers and training your customers on how to use the printer for whatever application they they may need it for. Yep, yep, exactly. Is there a, is there a country that's kind of leading the charge in 3D printing? Is there one that has more of a demand yep. for it, more interest of it, or more interest in it than anywhere else? Uh, well, the interest is more or less divided, I would say. Uh, the U.S. is definitely having a, like a, a big uh, interest at the moment uh, in 3D uh, concrete printing. Um, and the reason I think personally is that uh, concrete is not the uh, most common material to, to build houses in, in uh, the U.S., which is different uh, actually uh, in uh, other parts of the world. So in Jordan, for example, the Middle East, or Europe, uh, concrete is the main material to build houses. Uh, so it's not that uh, kind of an unfamiliar material. Um, so, so in the US, it, it seems that it's like a, quite a, a new building material for houses. So there's also that element of uh, you know, novel, novelty to the, to the technology, which is quite interesting. Uh, but I would say the two leading uh, countries uh, today and the reason they are leading is because they are, uh, the technology is supported by the governments uh, is number one uh, UAE and mainly Dubai uh, where I was working uh, and uh, the Netherlands. Uh, they have the highest concentration of 3D printed projects in the world. Hmm. The Netherlands. I probably, I would have definitely guessed Dubai. I wouldn't have guessed the Netherlands. That's, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. yeah. Your clients, the, the people that you're selling these printers to, what, what do they do primarily? Are, are we talking about uh, construction companies that build residential houses or is it something different? Uh, that's also uh, very interesting and uh, it's also something that uh, continues to amaze me like when I meet with different clients. Uh, there is no real uh, you know, uh, common background where my clients come from. Um, it could be some people that are involved in construction, some people that are in IT, uh, you know, they're working in IT, some people that are uh, really far away from construction. So there is no real, uh, you know, uh, specific um, group of people that are interested in this. And um, I kind of understand it because with 3D printing, and especially the solution that we're providing to our clients, you know, they can learn it, we can, we can teach them, we can pass on the knowledge within one week of training and they're able to start printing afterwards. So, you know, they don't really need to get involved into all of the complexity that we have experienced ourselves in the past. One week, one week. You can, you can teach someone how to use one this week. thing in one week. That's amazing. Yes, yeah. That, that is amazing because, heck, I'm still, I'm still learning how to use mine. <laughs> yeah, all you need is a, is a small team of two or three uh, to run the printer and you're good to go. kind of wanted to jump back into uh, the mixed design and how it relates to, you know, you said you got clients all over the world. Yeah. Are there materials that, do you guys just have a certain standard of materials that, you know, aggregates or cements or uh, admixtures or whatever? Do you work with more local materials and do they have to meet a certain standard or specification that you guys lay out or do you source materials? You said it was prepackaged. So do you source materials from one place, package it and then, and then ship it across you know, the world? 
Yeah, again, you know, we ourselves, we don't really produce the material. We work with uh, concrete manufacturing companies that produce us the material. So those kind of standards, it's really like it's the things that they're concerned with. Um, but yeah. So you cannot answer that one. You kind of did. So like, if, if you sell a printer to somebody in the Netherlands and then you sell a printer to somebody in the United States, they will essentially be working with yeah. local local providers um, for that yes. for that mixed yes. design that is yes. specific to their application. You, you're you not sending yes. out the same package material from one location to everybody. No, 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 no. No, that's, that's completely uh, against our goal here. Our goal here is to localize manufacturing uh, and to make it more sustainable. To, so to ship uh, materials across the world, you know, it's just not sustainable and it really doesn't make sense. So, All right, so, so with all that in mind, I mean, you, you told us about how advanced these, uh, these six-axis uh, printing machines are. You talked about how easy they are to implement. Um, uh, you know, within one week, they can be up and running to whatever application they're needed for, and they're used for applications that span everywhere from residential construction to prototyping to architecture and, and artwork. But what can we look for in the future? I mean, we're talking about a technology that is, that is advancing so rapidly. What's on the horizon? Like, what's on the immediate horizon? What's on the far horizon? as far as what you've seen is possible for these machines and what we can look for? Obviously, like one of the uh, biggest uh, advancements that we're looking for is uh, full automation of the system, because today still like um, the, there is a certain uh, limit, a certain amount of human involvement into in the 3D printing, uh, you know, mo monitoring the material, monitoring the print and so on. So one of the aspects that we are working on is uh, making it fully automated. Uh, that you as a human, you know, you just literally, like today it's literally pushing the button, but you need to monitor the printing and ensure uh, so, some parts of the printing and the quality is, is uh, uh, to, to your standards and what it needs to be. But in the future, what we're trying to achieve is a fully automated system that you can literally press a button, uh, go watch a movie, come back, uh, you have it printed, uh, you know. Uh, similar to what a plastic uh, printer, desktop printer uh, does, if it decides to run well that day. Um, <laughs> Heard that. But, yeah, because I've, I've printed with plastic and, and sometimes it just doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, but, for, uh, for yeah. no apparent reason uh, you come back to a plastic tumbleweed. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so uh, that's one of the, our goals. And second, second goal is that uh, we want to uh, scale up the technology that we are able to uh, produce uh, bigger pieces, faster manner, um, and and uh, you know to be able to print larger construction projects. Um, and the third aspect is, of course, uh, from the sustainable point of view. Uh, you know, we understand that uh, you know concrete and cement uh, contribute to eight percent of uh, global emissions. Uh, and what we would like to do is to uh, make uh, concrete a bit more sustainable uh, by probably reducing the amount of cement uh, content uh, and uh, hopefully reducing the CO2 emissions uh, uh, by that. Well, I, I mean, honestly, 
you guys are going to be you, by you guys uh, you, the 3d printing community the 3d printing industry is going to be naturally reducing the amount of carbon emissions that are used on a job site because you're gonna have less people there you're not gonna have ready mix trucks going back and forth to the job it streamlines the entire process and thus you're gonna get a natural co2 reduction just in that without even looking at the mix design itself so um, you know you're, you're doing great <laughs> great things there just naturally um, but right now, talking about the industry, it's been described by many as the Wild West, right? You have a lot of startups. You have a lot of new companies coming on board. You have a lot of not necessarily construction or concrete guys, but you have engineers and you have you know, people who understand these, these printers and, and how to evolve them. And, and right now, it, it's – and correct me if I'm wrong, obviously, but right now – the market itself for the 3D printing industry is a little bit scattered. And like I said, it, it could be known as the Wild West. So do you see a centralization of the industry or, or more of a, a consolidation? Yeah, I mean, uh, to be honest with you, like uh, the, the, the way that it's, uh, it's, it's uh, looking for me is that, you know, of course you have the um, technology providers that uh, understand the technology uh, and the industry and can provide a solution uh, for uh, smaller, uh, let's call it subcontractors, that they want to get into the concrete industry, either 3D printing uh, housing units or other applications. So you have those uh, service providers and the technology providers and you have the small subcontractors. Uh, now, it's not necessarily bad that you have the small subcontractors because, again, uh, going to my point of uh, localizing manufacturing that could be a good thing uh, when you have a small subcontractor close to a certain uh, you know uh, job site that can uh, print you your project uh, you know uh, quite easily and is accessible to you so that's that's one of the good things that can happen but also um, uh, we should not mix up the technology providers uh, with those uh, subcontractors because the technology providers are the ones that really understand the technology and provide it and the subcontractors are mainly using it as a tool uh, to get things printed. Um, so what could be a bit confusing to people is that when you look at a subcontractor that is printing with this, you could also mix it up and think that, okay, they are the ones providing the technology. Uh, but that, that's the way it is. And I don't think it's a, necessarily a bad thing. And I don't think that larger companies w will buy smaller companies. It's just a matter like, you know, a subcontractor that comes in and installs your windows. Uh, it's going to be that way. One question I did have in regards to, you know, localized materials. Do you think this is something that will expand into, say, the ready-mix industry? Do you foresee ready-mix suppliers, you know, creating a quote-unquote 3D concrete mix design to supply jobs like this? Yes, yes. It's already happening. It's already happening. You have uh, companies like uh, Simex, you have uh, companies like Sika, uh, you have uh, you know all, uh, Heidelberg Cement, for example. You have all of the big uh, concrete companies that are already having their uh, own mixes that they can supply to to job sites. In regards to that, um, say a ready mix truck does you know show up on site, uh, what would be the typical load size for a 3D concrete job? Um, for instance, would a concrete truck show up with, you know, 10 yards or, or 10 meters, uh, or would it be smaller loads? And how long do you think they would be on the job site? Because that's something I hear about pretty often over here in the States, 
especially um, even this past week on uh, some jobs that, that I was doing. Um, the concern was, you know, truck turnaround time and a concrete truck spending too much time on one job site when it could be servicing another. And they were also weighing out the, uh, the benefits of volumetric, you know, concrete trucks. Um, so, yeah, in short, what would be a load size and how long would a concrete truck spend on the job site? Well, here is where uh, this technology uh, excels in comparison to traditional uh, concrete uh, because with uh, 3D uh, concrete printing, as I mentioned before, you have a dry mix, meaning that you don't actually need a ready mix truck uh, to continue, you know, uh, like uh, rotating the material and keeping it kind of fresh. Uh, you are able to install a silo uh, onto your job site and basically uh, have your uh, dry powder uh, bags just uh, on, next to the job site without the need of any, of any truck and you basically just unload that dry material into your silo at any moment that you want. So you don't need to have any uh, certain truck waiting in the job site uh, and basically it's a completely independent solution. This is where I'm super confident that volumetric concrete is the uh is the ticket to 3d concrete i'm unsure do you guys even have do you guys have volumetric concrete trucks uh in europe or other parts of the world that you've seen um the the one the, the ones the like the ready ready mixed concrete right no so volumetric trucks here in the states uh they almost look like uh regular dump trucks and they have okay. individual bins and hoppers uh, they have, say, one side is rock or, or other or sand. Uh, another okay. bin is cement, and so they are actually okay. metered into mm -hmm. uh, the small hopper on the back of that truck, and it is mixed via an auger with water and placed into a pump, or it could be discharged, you know, just like right out of a concrete truck and onto the ground. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But the advantage that they have is essentially what you just said, you know, the, they can supply fresh concrete right then and there uh, on site. Yeah. Uh, the concrete doesn't continuously have to be mixed, you know, in a drum. Yeah. The truck can be stopped and you can halt, you know, pr production of that concrete and, you know, make any adjustments that you may need to make on site uh, with equipment or just whatever. And in the meantime, yeah. you know, you don't have concrete sitting there setting up and getting old. Yeah. And then when you're ready to start back up again, you can just crank that thing right back up and make, you know, completely fresh concrete. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I haven't seen it around around the, the, the world, to be honest. I have uh, never seen such a, a truck. But for, as I, as I mentioned, for 3D concrete printing uh, job sites, you don't need a similar truck. Uh, you just need a, a low bed trailer uh, with a bunch of uh, bags filled up with dry material. Uh, you deliver them to the site, you unload them from the truck, uh, if you decide to start printing one week after, two weeks after, that's not an issue. You just lift that bag, empty it in your silo and start printing. So it's not really dependent on availability of the truck or the presence of the truck or, or whatsoever. In instances where you're trying to print a large structure, is it possible to stitch two printers together, like code them together where one printer is printing until it can't print anymore and then another printer picks up the same print and continues along? Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's also one of the uh, methods that you are able to uh, 
use uh, robotic arm printers is that by uh, you know on a larger uh, construction uh, site you're able to implement three at a time for example and each one covers a certain uh, range of motion and they are printing simultaneously even and that will even make the printing process faster that the possibilities are endless then that's amazing i think initially for our podcast that is a fantastic synopsis of the 3d printing industry uh, its advantages, um, you know, and, and what, can, what we can expect in the future. So uh, to, to round us out, though, Joe, ask, ask the question uh, that, we, that we ask all of our guests because I'm interested to hear from the why. So, Lawai, you know, you've been all over the world, you know, with 3D concrete and printing. We have to ask you, what's the craziest thing you've seen on any of these job sites you've been to? Um... What is the crazy? Well, the craziest thing that I've seen is that you know when basically the printer is running and you know the the team is just uh, sitting down, uh, having a snack, chatting and not uh, really being worried about uh, the you know the wall being built. So that that was uh, a bit surre- surreal uh, to see uh, that you know you're just uh, leaving the job for a, for a robot for a printer. Um, and you can just relax. So <laughs> it's a very good diplomatic answer for somebody who owns a 3D printing company. That's <laughs> that is amazing. I was gonna say, I guess when you take more of the human element out of uh, a project such as a 3D printed uh, structure, that your uh, your crazy construction site stories are <laughs> they're not going to be they're not going to be as wild as say uh, when you have a, a legit job site going on in florida uh like we've seen in the past yeah 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 for sure awesome all right all right Luai. well we will uh, we will get you out of here on that we certainly appreciate your time today and appreciate all the information you were able to share with us and um, we're really, really looking forward to talking with you later down the road. The next big project or next big advancement that you have, um, you know, always reach out and we'll be happy to talk about it here on the program. But we appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And uh, it was a pleasure joining you guys uh, and uh, hope to stay in touch and uh, to chat with you uh, sometime soon again. All right, and that's going to do it for this episode of the Ad Tank Gallons Concrete Podcast. We hope you guys enjoyed. That's something we wanted to do for a long time. Uh, and we hope you learned a little bit more about the uh, ever-changing, incredibly exciting, and seemingly endless potential that is the world of concrete 3D printing. Be sure to give us a like and follow on our social media pages. That's Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube as well. Uh, Check all of our social pages for daily content. Uh, Tell a friend about the podcast. If you enjoyed it, give us a review wherever you get your podcasts and be on the lookout for the next episode here on the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Big thanks as always to our presenting sponsor, ActiGel 208. And once again, one final thanks to Luai from Print4D for all his wisdom that he shared on the podcast today. We certainly appreciated it. Until next time, y'all be good.